Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now the dream of this life must end. And so too must the dreamers within it. For over 30 years, they've lied to their own souls. For 30 years, they've denied their own fate. But now is the end of days, and I am the Reaper. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicates. I am your host, Armand Haddad, and this season we are exploring the cinematic adaptations of beloved stories. Today we are traveling to the abandoned town filled with ghouls of all shapes and sizes. For this week's recommendation is Silent Hill. But before we hunt down demons from another dimension, I am joined by a returning guest. You know him as one of the hosts of WSTR Galactic Public Access. Please welcome back to the show, Aaron Hulian. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for having me back on. It is great to have you back again. So today we are traveling all the way back to 2006 as we just watched a little movie called Silent Hill. That's right, Armand. What I love about your podcast is that it's not, you know, bottom of the bargain bin that you go through. It's not just the big major blockbusters that you cover, but you're really adept at finding the kind of diamonds in the rough the kind of movies that you would overlook, and I certainly think Silent Hill is one of those. Thank you. And, you know, props go to you because this is from your recommendation list. This was my first viewing, actually. Really? Yeah. I've always heard of Silent Hill, and I've always heard of the game franchise. A lot of my friends played it back in the day, but I never played it. So this was like my first outing with Silent Hill, and it was quite an adventure. So my history with this movie, years ago, I had a bit of a YouTube hobby, and I made this series of movies called Screen Jumper, where the whole premise of it was looking at video game adaptations of movies and vice versa, and kind of exploring the interplay between those two mediums and just evaluating different projects and how successful they were at adapting from the opposite medium. And Silent Hill was one of the more popular videos that I did. And I thought it was pretty special. I liked this movie. I thought it was one of the better movie adaptations of video games that I've seen. It's not without its problems, but we'll get into that. (laughs) Yeah, it's something I'd love to talk about. Yeah, like this movie, there's a certain level of care to the craft of making this movie. And it goes from use of the score to the cinematography when comparing it to the source material, which is a video game. It's very true to its source material. And I was pretty shocked to see that because I've seen other video game adaptations, but like a lot of them aren't faithful to, you know, the source material. 
Right. And probably the most infamous example of that is the Super Mario Brothers movie, of course. (laughs) But you also have stuff like the Resident Evil series, which is kind of its own thing. But if I can give a bit of background on what Silent Hill is, started as a PlayStation game uh, in 1999, developed and published by Konami. The whole basis of it is that it's psychological horror. You're not some kind of space marine who's fighting his way through swarms of aliens or demons or what have you, but you're just this kind of everyman guy. Uh, You play as Harry Mason, who he's driving through the middle of nowhere with his daughter Cheryl. He narrowly avoids running into somebody, crashes his car, and when he wakes up, his daughter's missing, and the whole goal of the game is to go find Cheryl, his missing daughter, through this kind of abandoned ghost town where it's snowing, and then there's all these kind of like otherworldly spiritual beings that attack you. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a ton of ammo. Even when you do have ammo for your guns, the aim is shitty. You have like a map, but you can only look at it when you have some kind of light on it. It's always either dark or like really snowy and foggy, so you can mm-hmm. barely see anyway. If you've played horror games before in this kind of modern era, none of this probably sounds new to you, but it was absolutely new at the time. And it's one of the more revolutionary horror games out there. And so you end up going through this town and a bunch of spooky horror shit happens and there's like the occult in there and you kind of unwind this plot about this cult in this town that is trying to use this little girl to kind of birth their deity to like bring about the apocalypse. And so that's the background with Silent Hill. As far as it applies to the movie, we have a very similar setup uh, they incorporate some elements from Silent Hill 2, but that's that's your foundation. Yeah, like the Silent Hill story is kind of this nice mix of like a supernatural horror and also mystery in regards to what happened to this town. Because like yeah. Harry Mason in the video game is kind of like the surrogate for the viewer, like there's nothing really special about him. He's, he's just a guy. The viewer only knows what the character knows. So let's get into the spookiness. So, so we did a little overview on the game franchise of Silent Hill, and we talked a little bit about what's the general story behind it. But let's really get into the 2006 movie adaptation of Silent Hill. Before we really dive deep into the plot. A thing we like to do on Syndicate is the 60-second elevator pitch. Please stand clear of the closing door. So you really only have 60 seconds to really sell somebody on a movie. Today, I would like you to summarize the plot of the Silent Hill movie in 60 seconds while avoiding major spoilers. Aaron, are you ready? I am ready. All right, Aaron. You're going to start in three, two, one. Okay, so you have a happy uh, uh, middle-class couple in, a, in somewhere in Ohio um, with, a, with a cute little innocent daughter who, oh no, she's going through a bunch of mental weirdness, sleepwalking. She keeps saying the name Silent Hill. What does that mean? It's a town in West Virginia, not just any town, but a ghost town. So... Uh, Sharon, her mother, must take her down there and figure out what in the world is going on. Well, as soon as she starts asking about it, people are acting all weird and defensive about it. She finally makes her way there, uh, dodging police to do so, and whoops, ends up in an alternate reality where nothing seems to make sense. There are all sorts of otherworldly creatures uh, trying to stop her from finding her missing daughter. And as she goes looking deeper and deeper into the mysteries... Uh, more secrets are unveiled and she starts to dig into this town's secret past just as in the other reality her husband who is trying to find her is also digging into it nice and time that's about it but yeah (laughs) what will happen from there who knows you gotta find them (laughs) you gotta listen to the rest of this episode or watch the movie to find out nice yeah i mean you summed it up pretty well it's a pretty simplistic story other than the third act where it gets a little crazy. So are you ready to jump into the story now? Let's dig in. Okay. 
So the movie opens with uh, Ned Stark. I mean, Sean Bean. So Sean <laughs> Bean is in this movie, and that was the biggest surprise I had watching this movie. I was like, I can't believe Sean Bean is in this. And spoiler alert, he does not die. Yeah, this is one of the few <laughs> movies where he does not bite it at the end. Although I'm sure at the end, I, he probably wished he had. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, the biggest... So the biggest change with the film adaptation, this movie was directed by Christoph Gans. So we are alluding to this earlier, the cinematography and the score and even like the whole like production is very much in line with the source material. And that's because Christoph Gans is a major Silent Hill fan. And it shows because his production is like, not necessarily a carbon copy of the video game, but like so faithful to the video game. I was surprised. It is. Just rewatching the movie, I was like taken right back to the game where, especially in key locations, like you're going through the town and just kind of down the main street. And when you're going down some of the kind of side streets where you have the detached garages, the like stroller turned over. It's all just very faithful to the look and feel of the movie. Then later, key locations like the school and the hospital, those look pretty much just like the game. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of love and care put into the look and feel of this movie. And I think that's actually one of its strengths, the striking visuals of the movie and the atmosphere of it. Because that's one of the main features of the game is that it's not just spooky monsters jumping out at you, although there are some points of the game there where that happens. It's the atmosphere itself is almost a character. And they paid a lot of attention to that when they made this movie. Uh, it, it's actually how the movie actually happened. Christoph Gans, he basically sent like a bunch of letters to Konami saying, hey, I really love this your game. Please let me make your movie. And they liked it enough that they were like, okay, here you go. <laughs> Yeah, like, it took him so long to get the rights to make the movie. I think it took, like, mm-hmm. five years to Something get the, like that, the yeah. rights to make a movie. I mean, that's dedication, and, like, if I was, like, a fan of a video game franchise and, like, a super diehard fan, like, I don't care how long it would take. Like, I'm a huge Halo fan, and I would love to see a Halo movie, so I've been waiting... 15 years for that adaptation <laughs> never yeah. happened peter jackson was supposed to make it but that kind of fell yeah through that's what microscope. i heard so um, instead he made district nine <laughs> yeah that's not so bad but i think that's one of the key ingredients that you need if you're going to have a successful movie adaptation of a video game is that you actually have to give a damn about the source material right um and it's very clear in the case of silent hill that he does yeah um, like I was watching the cinematics for Silent Hill and I was shocked to see the movie recreates the cinematics of that video game. And I was like, cause I'm used to like, okay, a video game adaptation. It's not going to be the same at all. Like mm-hmm. if you watch doom, it has nothing to do with the video game. It has nothing <laughs> no, to do with not. the story other than it's on Mars and there's demons. Yeah okay, they actually took the story from the video game and just brought it to life. So the biggest change with the story that I saw from video game to movie is that they swapped out the protagonist. So Mm -hmm. in the video game, it's a man, Harry Mason, and then in the movie, it's a woman. So it's the wife's story. Yes, Sean Bean almost didn't have a part in this movie. He was supposed to be at kind of the beginning and the end. Then the studio kind of like looked at the script and they're like, uh, it's all chicks in this story. Um, <laughs> can you work Sean Bean in there a little bit more? So he does. We can get into that bit more, uh, how that affected the story. But yeah, it's a, it's a female-centric story. So take that, gamers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was not expecting that. The main protagonist is a woman. So it starts off pretty much the same as the video game where they're driving down the road and then they see a mysterious woman in the streets. They swerve, crash the car, and then wake up in this strange world, this other dimension. And then another key difference is 
which I don't know why they did this. Maybe you know why. So in the beginning of the video game, Harry Mason is kind of working with the police. So this police officer, her name is Seibel. Mm -hmm. And then they go into Silent Hill. and But in the movie, there's a very different situation. Could you explain that? Yeah. So in the movie, Rose decides to bring her daughter Sharon to Silent Hill because, you know, she keeps sleepwalking. She's going to dangerous places. And when she sleepwalks, uh, like at the prologue in the movie, she almost like jumps into this pit. You know, psych meds aren't helping. She's at her wit's end and doesn't know what to do. So she's going to bring her daughter to Silent Hill and figure out, you know, what the hell's going on. On the way, she's she's driving from Ohio to Silent Hill, West Virginia. And so they stop at a gas station and this police officer stops by. This is Sybil Barrett. But in the movie, she takes an interest in Sharon. It's kind of implied that Sybil doesn't trust that Rose is the mother of Sharon. She kind of believes it might be like a child kidnapping thing. The reason for this is there's lots of psychological horror going on. And I believe it's connected to Rose and her fears and concerns about being a mother. One of these connected fears is people not believing that you're actually the mother of your child. This is a legitimate fear because, as we learn later, Sharon is adopted. And so Rose has reason to have this kind of uh, source of her fear show up. In this case, it shows up in the form of Sybil Barrett. She talks to Sharon through the window and says, like hey, what's going on? Is everything okay? Sharon says, I don't talk to strangers. Sybil's like, good girl. (laughs) And uh, takes down the license plate number and everything. And we find out at the diner that Rose can't pay for gas because she's not returning calls to her husband. Husband figures, you know, she took Sharon and went off running. uh, So he cuts off her credit cards it's kind of step one in rose losing allies and losing resources that she has but she decides you know my daughter's too important i gotta figure out what's going on and she calls her husband and says even if you cut off my credit cards it's not going to stop me from getting to silent hill and figuring out you know what the hell's going on right so that's where uh sybil barrett is introduced and Mm -hmm. later she ends up pulling over rose it's not really clear why It's inferred that it's kind of in connection to her suspicions of uh, child abduction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And later we hear this story about how Sybil stopped this kind of weirdo pervert from a few years prior who abducted a kid and like threw him down a mine shaft, (laughs) which kind of weird, but okay. She has her reasons for being suspicious. So she stops... Rose and and Sharon. Rose sees that she's like just at the turn where you would take to go to Silent Hill. And so she decides to just gun it, dashes across this bridge, which is important psychologically. In pursuit is Sybil Barrett. And just like the game, they kind of swerve to avoid this girl who's just walked across the road. Rose is knocked out. When she comes to, Sharon is missing. The uh, car door is open, and she's in this kind of alternate reality where ash is raining from up above. Right. Um, When I was watching it originally, I inferred the context of that because I figured since Capcom, Resident Evil, that's a Japanese production, and Konami, I was like, well, that's a Japanese company as well. Um, Mm -hmm. What I didn't know was that they created Silent Hill to be targeted towards Western audiences. It wasn't really marketed towards Japanese. So I figured the ash that was tapping into the psychological theme of like nuclear war and the Japanese sentiment towards Hiroshima and Hmm. like that collective trauma, unconsciousness, but... That's probably not correct. Uh, unfortunately, no. That's a, that's an interesting take, and you would not be off base, except in the original game, it's actually snow. It was changed to ash in the movie because it was inspired by 
this actual mining town uh, called Centralia, Pennsylvania. Right. And that mining town, they had a fire start underneath it mm-hmm. that because of the just abundant seams of coal that are available to it, it's a fire that is still burning to this day. It's this basically eternal fire underground and they took inspiration for that and made the snow that is in the game instead be this kind of ash that's thrown up into the atmosphere and then uh, deposited downwards. Which is a very interesting and creative take on the video game because Mm -hmm. in the game, the reason why there's fog and snow everywhere is for the limits of the technology at the time. They couldn't render out an entire town. So right. they, you know, obscured the town and made low visibility so they can, you know, load out all this stuff on the on the CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. So by having the movie take inspiration from Centralia and having it be like, oh, there's a coal fire underneath and, you know, now the town's abandoned and that's why no one's there and that's why there's so much ash coming raining down it's like ah that's really good that's a really good take on it yeah i thought it was a stroke of brilliance (laughs) and that's where the writer and the director come into play because like since they're fans they know how to carefully construct a world that is believable for those who admire the world of silent hill yes and there's some important psychological elements to this too where this kind of fire that's always boiling underneath the surface it comes into play in the story of this town where there's a tragedy connected to this town as we learn it's not been brought to completion there's not been closure to it and so it's kind of been festering underneath this town for the past 30 years and just now being brought to light as rose tries to find Sharon. And so the imagery of this eternal fire burning underneath the town is quite apt. So that's one of the stronger points of the movie. I would think there's quite a bit of psychological elements to it where just like the game, it's kind of working the character's story and psyche into the horror that you witness. It's not just scary monsters for the sake of scary monsters, but they have some kind of connection to the character's psyche and story. And we run into the first one of these when Rose kind of awaking from her stupor, she kind of takes in her surroundings. Um, There's ash falling from the sky. It's all foggy. And she's trying to find Sharon. And she thinks she sees her. She runs off and she's going down this main street that's just completely abandoned. And, By the way, there's a little joke hidden in the background. There's a furniture store called M.T. Rooms. Empty rooms. Everything's a facade. (laughs) Yep. And so she goes into this alley. She's following this child, which she thinks is Sharon. And she hears these air raid sirens go off. Right. And once this happens, all of a sudden, like, darkness descends on the town. Mm -hmm. She lights a lighter to light her way. And this is kind of the segment of the movie that most feels like the game. She's going down this alley. There's these chain link fences that Mm -hmm. she has to navigate through almost like a maze. And the camera angles are straight out of the game. Yep, It's quite remarkable. And she goes through. She sees this kind of like hospital bed with a empty body bag on it just in the middle of nowhere sees glimpses of this child in her vision. She comes, goes chasing after it and she sees a bunch of blood and guts on the ground, looks Mm -hmm. up and there's this uh, body of what looks like a miner, like a coal miner kind of strung up and tied up on this chain link fence. And she backs away and it looks like this body is still alive. It's like you could see movement underneath the mask and it's looking at her, but it's like eviscerated and its bowels are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then she's set upon by a bunch of these like baby looking monsters. Yep. Who are like, they move all weird. They're kind of gray and twisted and it it looks like they're burning from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite horrific. Yeah. Like that sequence is pretty much lifted from the video game, Mm -hmm. but there's a major difference and the way that scene plays out 
in the video game. Uh, Harry Mason is attacked by these monsters and then seemingly dies in that mm-hmm. sequence and then is awakened in a completely different location with Cybel, the police officer. Yes, and that's when you actually get like your flashlight and your radio, uh, and I believe you get a gun at that time too, because Sybil decides to help you out. Not so with Rose. She no. wakes up in a dingy bowling alley with Ring of Fire playing on the jukebox. <laughs> Love indeed is a burning thing, as we will find out later. And that's when we flash back to Christopher, her husband, who is trying to figure out what in the world is going on. He got a phone message from Rose kind of saying like where she is and what she's up to. But on his end, it's like a bunch of static cutting in and out. Mm -hmm. And as we learn, Rose has the cell phone kind of strapped around her neck. And anytime there's some weird supernatural stuff nearby, static like rises up from the cell phone, which happens in the game. You have a little walkie talkie on you. And anytime you're about to run into some monsters, the static sound gets louder and louder, and it is terrifying. (laughs) I can imagine. It's very interesting, because, like, at this point, I'm wondering, how did they even get here? Because, like, as the story progresses, Sean Bean tries to find his missing wife and his missing child, uh, so he goes to the town of Silent Hill, or tries to, And he is met by a barricade of police officers blocking off the bridge. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, like, my wife is in there. I need to find my wife and my kids. And they responded, one of our own is missing, too. And we we are handling the situation. At this point, I was wondering, is this like a cover-up? Does this town know that there's something going on in Silent Hill? But Mm -hmm. as the investigation continues, they go into the town and it's broad daylight. It's kind of like our world. Uh, There's no fog. There's no raining ash. And they're almost in like the same locations as Rose is in. But it's like completely different. So at this point, I'm wondering, did they like slip into like another dimension? It's very thought provoking. It is, and I would say it's left deliberately ambiguous. I have my own theories, but we'll save that for the (laughs) end. But it also touches on kind of the differences between Japanese horror and Western horror. Western horror, evil tends to be located in individuals, where Japanese horror, the kind of evil presence tends to be an idea that kind of infests itself in a certain location. And so when people enter into or out of that location, they can be corrupted by whatever that evil presence is. And we kind of get that in the Western horror mythos with the idea of like haunted houses. But even then, the kind of Western variant of that is that there is uh, someone evil in that house who is making that house evil. Right. Uh, and the Japanese perspective of it would be whatever kind of evil deeds brought this horror here the horror is now in this location and so needs to be purified in some way in order to get that evil spirit out so that is kind of what we see with silent hill as this story unfolds and as uh as sean bean looks into things and figures out what is going on this town has a bit of a dark past that they inflicted on this little girl that they are now answering to as part of this kind of evil presence that lingers in this town. Right. And let's get into it. The video game and the movie are pretty parallel when it comes to storytelling in this regard. So Mm. at this point, as the viewer and the characters are traversing this unknown town, they're stumbling upon what actually happened in Silent Hill for it to get to this state of disarray. And so... At this point in the story, we are learning about a little girl called Alyssa Gillespie. And Alyssa Gillespie is a pivotal character in the Silent Hill story because of what happened to her and the people around her that inflicted this. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Trauma and horror upon this little girl. Would you like to unpack it? Yes. So what happens in Silent Hill is that Silent Hill is predominantly the center of this kind of religious cult and a doomsday cult at that. They're kind of preoccupied with the apocalypse and the end of the world, and they believed that there were these kind of evil witches among them, that it was their duty to discover who these witches were and ritually sacrifice them through burning them in order to stave off the apocalypse. And one of these witches that they found turned out to be this little girl. Her name's Alessa. We find out later in the movie, the leader of their cult goes by the name of Christabella, who also looks a lot like the Borg Queen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, her sister, Dahlia Mm. Gillespie, had a child out of wedlock. And so because of that, that child was basically like a marked sinner. And so was bullied and, and teased and Dahlia never named the father. They don't go into more detail than that, so there's something to that. But anyway, they decide that Alessa is a witch, and I believe is supposed to be the vessel of this kind of vengeful spirit, which mm-hmm. uh, is never named, goes by many names, actually. But this vengeful spirit this cult decides uh, needs to be exterminated in order to prevent the apocalypse. And so they take Alessa to this hotel and decide to kind of ritually sacrifice her, burn her above this brigier full of embers Mm -hmm. um, in order to purify the town and save them from apocalypse. But it goes wrong. She ends up swinging loose, knocking over the brigier and starting this fire that ends up engulfing the whole town and igniting the kind of coal fire underground. And so for the last 30 years, that coal fire has been burning and the spirit that possesses Alessa is looking for revenge. Right. So in a way, the cultists were right in that there's a spirit (laughs) there, but in a way that they were wrong for just taking it out on this little girl. And so... Rose agrees to assist this spirit in its revenge mm-hmm. against the cult. Unfortunately, uh, Sybil kind of gets caught in the crossfire and she ends up uh, sacrificed as a result, burned above this fire. Right. And just when they're getting Sharon in place to be the next sacrifice, Rose is able to intervene. And then Alessa is allowed to have her revenge Right. So it's at this point in the movie when, so the first two sections, say you were to divide this movie into three parts. So the first two sections are the atmospheric psychological thriller essence of Silent Hill, where you're with the character, you're trying to figure out what's going on and trying to survive at the same time in this other dimension. And then the movie pivots to kind of, Uh, a religious horror story with, as you put it, a doomsday cult. They're waiting for the end of days and 
they're sacrificing children to like this dark God. And I was not expecting that. <laughs> I, yeah. didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even know that was part of the Silent Hill mythos. The movie takes a left turn and it's like, oh, am I watching the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fairly close to the original game. The original game, they took a lot of influences from Jewish mysticism. They get into these kind of different spiritual beings, which in the game, they are trying to birth a a manifestation of their deity that they worship um, to, you know, bring about the end of days. They kind of flip that a little bit in the movie and they want to um, destroy this little girl as the kind of manifestation of this spirit that they believe will bring about the end of days. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a bit flipped, but that kind of gets into one of the problems of the movie. It's kind of like two different stories going on at once, maybe even three, considering uh, Sean Bean's character. Right. So it gets a little confused and muddled at times. Yeah, like, that's my big critique is, like, I was on board with the mother trying to find the child and then also get back home. Mm -hmm. And then Sean Bean trying to figure out what happened to his wife. And then once you mix in completely different plot line with the cultists, (laughs) and it's like, what exactly is happening? Because, like, so say she is in another dimension. How are they there? Are they living there? Do they need to eat? What are they doing? Are they mortal? Are they immortal? Are they demons? Are they like yeah. the monsters that they encountered previously? It's left ambiguous. I'm kind of okay with them leaving it ambiguous. Um, Rose confronts the cult to, you know, let my daughter go, and they don't. And then Rose ends up stabbed by Christabella, the leader of this cult, and her blood ends up summoning Alessa who appears as this kind of like total burn victim on a hospital bed held aloft by this kind of sea of barbed wire that ends up making like a bunch of different tentacles under her control. And it's almost like this kind of religious image. She kind of looks like Christ on the cross, but Mm -hmm. with her arms across her chest instead of out to the side. And uh, she ends up using, like, these tendrils of barbed wire to exact her revenge. She right. grabs uh, Christabella. And one of the most graphic deaths I've ever seen in a movie. Right. It turns into, like, a Hellraiser movie. It, yeah. She ends up being, like, held aloft by this barbed wire. And, you know, she's calling out to whatever deity to, like, keep her pure. And ends up, like, legs spread apart, entered into through her vagina with these barbed wire tendrils and, like... You know, they they end up like poking out through her torso and, and then her mouth, and then just like ripping her in part. Um, yeah, yeah, fa- fairly graphic. But you know, uh, Alessa or the spirit possessing her, one of the two, ends up getting her revenge, and then dancing in the blood of that cult <laughs> yeah. leader. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, Shh. Like, it's a bit over the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But Rose and Sharon end up escaping and they drive across and earlier there's this kind of like the road kind of collapsed into a pit of nothing when they tried to leave. But yeah. now as they drive over it, it kind of solidifies and they're able to to escape. But as they head home, you know, she calls home and lets her husband know that everything's okay, that mm-hmm. they have Sharon, it's all going to be all right. And the message that he gets is cut in and out with static they head home and nobody's there and it's still kind of misty and foggy and it kind of goes back to the parallel dimension like our world and Christopher is there and they're not there so even though he kind of gets like a premonition like of their presence there he doesn't feel that they're there so there's this ambiguous ending of what exactly is going on and I actually like that. Yeah, me too. The problem is the movie's kind of missing some setup to explain what exactly that is. It's not like we need all the answers, but the movie's a bit confused, and I think it suffers as a result of that. She's in her house, and Sean Bean's character is also there, but they're separated 
through time and space, I guess. They're inhabiting the same area, just like we were talking about with Silent Hill uh, when he went to try and find his wife, that they're in the same locations, but they're not. And Right. Yeah, is Silent Hill like a purgatory state? Well, Armand, what if I told you that the, the original Silent Hill game has five different endings? Based on what you do in the game prior to the kind of final fight that determines kind of what which ending that you get, there's one where, like, the spirit that you're trying to fight ends up, like, reincarnating in this infant that you find. There's a bad ending where it's revealed all to be kind of like this hallucination as Harry Mason is just, like, dead in his Jeep from the car right. crash at the beginning of the game. And there's one where um, it, it's just a joke ending where UFOs land and abduct you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I'm impressed that they kind of built that amb- ambiguity into the ending of the movie. I don't think that's an easy thing to do. But I don't think they needed kind of like a muddled story in the middle of the movie to right. actually get there. And by that, I mean we... Part of it kind of feels like studio meddling where they're like, oh, we need to give Sean Bean more to do. Like, you know, of get, course. have him investigate things like on our side of the things, which makes sense on paper, but you end up treading over the same ground over and over again throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, and you start putting pieces together. Well, they give you pieces that you can put together and then kind of bizarrely towards the end of the second act they have this kind of like 10 minute sequence where it's basically just a lore dump and it's Alessa telling you exactly what happened in the town 30 years ago and here's why everything went horrible when you probably could have pieced it together yourself and it's like Mm -hmm. oh my god this this is awful stop it (laughs) and on top of that it has like the sheen of like Windows Movie Maker, where you put like okay, sepia <laughs> yeah. tones and like yeah. old timey filter where it has like scratches and stuff on it. I'm like, yeah, what is and happening? It's just, it's just that and voiceover, and it's like, huh, what? And it's very have, 2006. It, it is, and you have a bunch of characters who have some kind of weird connection to this town where they didn't really need it. Mm-hmm. This is a script that could have used another editing pass, and the film itself could have used another editing pass probably could have been like 30 minutes shorter so it drags out a bit and it's kind of muddled in the middle but i don't want that to detract from the kind of really good elements of this movie right and one of those that i like to talk about is the kind of psychological depth that we see in some of the characters and symbols in this movie I think you can get a lot of depth out of this movie if you understand it from a psychological perspective from Rose's point of view. And that is related to the fears of being a mother. And we, this is kind of where Silent Hill, at least from the games, where they really shine because the way that they understood horror was that it's not just creepy monsters being creepy and startling you, although it can be that. The monsters that you see and what happens with the environment around you is related to your psyche and your story, and they kind of spring from that. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of go into the movie and you take it as this is going to be a psychological horror movie about the fears of being a mother, a lot of things start to make sense. Like the monsters that attack Rose at the beginning of the movie, they're all kind of these like gray blobby baby things that are burning from the inside out. The burning from the inside out thing is of course related to the town. And I love that. I love that the town is kind of a metaphor for the horror inflicted on Alessa and the idea that trauma is this kind of underground fire where Mm. you, you can't really see it, but it is, just as deadly as a regular fire and will burn forever unless you actually treat the source and Mm -hmm. and stop it there so it works into that but you also have things like this whole town story of uh taking this child and sacrificing her for the good of the town 
it's kind of the fear that all mothers face is that you're going to bring this child into the world and despite your best efforts, you can't hold on to them forever and you're going to have to basically give them back to, to the world in right. one way or another and the world's just going to be brutal to them. Mm-hmm. And that's the greatest fear is that you're going to give up this child to the world and the child is just going to be destroyed and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's something that Rose is feeling as this adoptive parent. Being an adoptive parent, you're given this chance to raise this child and there's so many things that can go wrong. And uh, one, one of the psychological aspects I think is brought up with Sybil in that she looks a lot like Rose, except she's more masculine. She's got the kind of biker cop get up. She's got a gun. She's got a butch haircut. You know, she she kind of represents the, the protective aspect of the mother who's out there to like take charge and actually do things to the world to protect her daughter. Right. And she kind of serves as a mentor throughout most of the movie, kind of guiding Rose along. And when Rose is just like paralyzed with fear at one point, she like, picks her up off the ground and says, come on, we got to get going, pull yourself together, that sort of thing. And eventually that has to lose out because Rose has to kind of discover that ability within herself to be able to take action. And she does. She starts to take charge and put the clues together and and that sort of thing. Uh, and, And you see this kind of visual transformation in her. You know, she's contrasted against Dahlia Gillespie, who... I, I when I was taking notes, I called her Gollum Lady because she kind of looks like this <laughs> homeless lady with like unkempt hair, and she just speaks in vague aphorisms, and right. like that's kind of like the mother who's too nurturing, mm. and and that's kind of like a dark side that you know Rose doesn't want to become. She wants to be a good mother, and mm-hmm. she's willing to do whatever it takes, but she doesn't want to be like so nurturing of her child that she ends up kind of this passive thing that you know, the rest of the world shits on and Mm. nothing ever happens. And kind of the opposite of that is Sybil Barrett, where it's this kind of like aggressive kind of go beat them up attitude of being a mother that, you know, maybe it'll keep her alive and help her survive, but you can't raise a child like that. So she just has to kind of mediate between these two extremes. And kind of the foil opposite of her is Christabella, the leader of this cult, who is so kind of wacko, paranoid, uh, protective that she's like turned this whole community into this incredibly toxic place. And so it's Rose in pulling together these different parts of her psyche to be that kind of good mother that she needs to be for Sharon, where she's able to stand up to Christabella and say like, hey, this needs to stop. And that allows uh, Alessa to take her revenge. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot psychologically going on with this movie that I absolutely love. I just wish it wasn't such a muddled mess. Yeah, it's incredibly deep right. when you psychoanalyze uh, the subject matter. Yeah, that's why it doesn't make sense to me that Pyramid Head is in this movie. Yeah, I noticed that. I felt like it was like the fan service moment because like... I'm not really familiar with Silent Hill. Uh, like, I didn't really know anything about Silent Hill before watching this movie, but I knew who Pyramid Head was. Yeah. He's kind of like the Darth Vader of that universe. Yeah. Pyramid Head, for those who don't know, um, it's this monster who shows up in Silent Hill 2. So, not the original game, but Silent Hill 2. And Pyramid Head is, he's like this huge jack dude with like a butcher's apron on and he's got like a giant pyramid helmet thing on and why i stress the kind of importance of the psychological aspect to this movie is that all of these different monsters that show up in the silent hill movie they make sense as far as what's going on with rose she's you know afraid of the weird baby things because that is like the fear of a mother's child like getting out of hand or yeah. uh, the, the child growing sick or deformed or whatever. And then you have monsters that are nurses, which, you know, childbirth and all that and the horrors of going through that as a woman. And then you mm-hmm. have these distorted nurse uh, monsters running after you. 
Yeah, or even when she's in the school, the um, she has to go through these stalls and she finds this kind of bound up corpse of this janitor who's like bound in this kind of like tortured position. And it's implied that this janitor was a weirdo sex pervert with Alessa, which right. I, I don't know why I keep getting on the syndicate episodes with you and it turns into <laughs> a weird sex pervert thing, but here we go. And that turns into a monster that's like crawls after her and stuff like that. So it all mm. makes sense. But then why Pyramid Head? Why does he show up? It's not really clear why he's there. You could probably make some broad strokes suggestions like it's fear of male aggression or something like that. And there's some phallic imagery with the giant sword that he has kind of plunging through this door that they're hiding behind. Right. But in the context of Silent Hill, it's like in Silent Hill 2, that monster represented something, represented James Thunderland's like guilt and desire for punishment for whatever he did. And so that monster made sense with specifically James Sunderland. It doesn't really make as much sense with Rose. So I really wonder why he's in there. And it makes me kind of scratch my head and say, oh, they had to put him in there because it's a Silent Hill game. They had to put him in there. He's the mascot. Mm -hmm. So I think it's to the movie's detriment, but at the same time, you're going to get a bunch of Silent Hill fanboys who are like, why didn't you put Pyramid Head in there? So I saw him and I clapped. <laughs> I <laughs> stood up and I'm like, I know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. I, I, I will admit him picking up the, you know, kind of shitty cultist and just like ripping all of her flesh off like a like a bath towel and just throwing it against the wall. That was pretty badass. I loved it. It was. Didn't make sense to the story, but I loved it. <laughs> so before we end the show, one thing we like to do at Syndicates is the one reason why. So what is one reason you would give somebody to watch this movie? One reason why is because this movie, it's just a weird recommendation. I, I feel like I have to put like four asterisks after it because <laughs> if you're a Silent Hill fan, then you've probably already seen it. If not, then get on it because you'll probably like it anyway. If you're not a Silent Hill fan, you're probably going to get confused. I'm not totally against being confused as a viewer, especially when it comes to weird psychological horror. But this movie could it could use a bit more direction. And I think a lot of that confusion kind of works against it in that it's hard to feel any kind of tension with the movie because... Tension happens when there's a dramatic question. You know that things are at stake and there's a dramatic question where will the hero be able to do this or be able to get that or prevent this from happening? And they kind of set that up where it's like, will Rose be able to find Sharon? But it's not really made clear throughout the movie. She's chasing this like phantom child that kind of looks like Alessa throughout most of the movie And we as an audience don't know where Sharon is. And then right at the beginning of the third act, Sharon's just kind of like sleeping in a bed in a hotel (laughs) in the town. Right. And we don't know how she got there. And it's like, what? Tension is when... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It looks like disaster is imminent, and we think the heroes can avoid it, but we're not sure how, and we're not sure exactly even if they're able to avoid it, but we know that there's a chance. And the movie fails on that a lot where we're not really even sure why people are where they are we're not sure what they're going after exactly and so when things when obstacles get in their way it's more like something happening to them instead of something like an obstacle in their way preventing them from getting what they want so the movie needed a bit more editing to make that work but and i know it feels like i've torn this movie down that's not my intention i really think there's something special here that a lot of other movies can learn from yeah i think there's a lot of lessons to be pulled as far as adapting a video game to a movie i think they did it brilliantly i think the movie itself could use some more work but as far as an adaptation goes i don't really have anything to recommend that they could do better other than make a better movie the kind of angle that they took with it with the psychological horror aspects there's a lot of good stuff that they nailed in it which mm-hmm. you know i wouldn't have expected a movie like this to do and there's a lot of value to gain from that so i would recommend it on the strength of that it's just you might need to fast forward a couple times <laughs> <laughs> if you're not a silent hill fan it might be a hard sell that's all <laughs> that's that's my take on it yeah i can yeah, I could definitely see that because like me as an outsider looking in, I was like, okay, the exposition dumps were helpful. It slowed down the action. It slowed it, it did. like the entire story like came to like a standstill. It's like, and eh, hold on, before we continue, let me tell you a little story called Silent Hill. <laughs> it feels like there's a bit of studio meddling going on. I don't know oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm sure there was. Like a lot of things pointed towards that because like if Christoph Gans had his way, it would probably look like a different movie. It would probably be solely centered around Rose and not so much Sean Bean and so many other things as an outsider looking in. It made sense, but the aspect of showing not telling is something that should be followed and silent Hill showcases why that is so important because like it fails to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't like completely derail the whole movie, but you need to set up things throughout and not just dump it all in one scene. And God forbid a scene that has weird filters (laughs) (laughs) over what was shot. And it's like, it, it just looked really bad and cheap. It kind of, it cheapened the whole experience. Yeah, there's ways to tell that kind of story without just dumping it all on us. I think if they cut out the kind of Sean Bean subplot and replaced it with some of that exposition from Alessa's point of view, that maybe would have worked better. But also it's confusing a bit of Japanese and Western horror where Japanese horror, you don't need necessarily to have all your questions answered or everything explained to you or everything boiled down to one bad guy that must be stopped. You can put together some of the pieces of what happened at a certain place, um, but you're not going to get all the answers. And it's part of that ambiguity that's going to stick with you and keep you thinking after the movie is done. And that can make for very effective horror. Having everything explained to you and having all the pieces in place may not be the answer depending on what you're going for. And I don't think it's called for in this case. Well said, Aaron. Well said. And then for me, the reason I would recommend it is Silent Hill feels, from all the video game adaptation films I've seen, the one that is most faithful to the subject matter because not only did the movie recreate shots from the video game. Mm -hmm. Set design, too. Yeah, the set design, creature design, Everything aesthetic was faithful to the original subject matter. And then to take it a step further, 
the the production used the music from the video games mm-hmm. in the movie. That's incredible. I don't know any other movie that does that. Like they took it's kind of like if they made a Legend of Zelda movie and then they took the soundtrack and just like put it in the movie. Yeah. It makes more of a difference than you would think to have mm-hmm. that in there. Yeah, it adds like authenticity and a level of care for this story. Mm-hmm. Like it it just it fits well and don't fix what's not broken. Like if the if the music works for the video game, it should work for the movie. Like it just it just makes sense. Yeah, and that's not to say that the movie has to be identical to the game. There's going to be things that should change as a result of hopping from medium to medium. Exactly. Understand what are the building blocks of the game you're trying to adapt, what it's trying to do, and you know you have the freedom to put your own personal twist on things as well. Um, I was thrilled that most of the cast is female-centric without making it like an obnoxious point while doing so, you know? It just felt natural, and the way that you can look at it through a psychoanalytic lens just makes it all the more deeper and richer and more fulfilling as a result. So I'm not shedding a tear that Harry Mason isn't in it, you know? But the fact that they gave enough of a shit to pay attention to the details and carry those over where it made sense to do so, that makes all the difference to me. And that goes a long way in kind of winning my love for this movie. So yeah, I'd still recommend it. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about Silent Hill by Christophe Gans. Please check it out where it is available. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank my guest Aaron for coming on to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, Aaron, you are welcome back anytime. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E, Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have any questions or any film recommendations for us, please email Syndicate at info at Syndicate.com or visit the website Syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. Goodbye.